It has been my custom to read you the uh, section in the text that we discuss and to read you the lesson. And I may not do that every time. I don't intend to do that this morning. Um, but I do invite you to look at it if you want prior to the upcoming service. So the, the section that we'll be discussing next week will be entitled Wholeness and Spirit. It's on page 9. And let's see. The lesson will be lesson number 8. Today's lesson is I See Only the Past. We, we talked a couple of Sundays ago about a tree. Let's, let's, let's talk about this tree as an oak tree. It has acorns on it. So here we see the acorn hanging on the tree. But once again, the acorn is the tree, isn't it? The acorn is on the twig, and the twig is on the branch. The branch connects to the trunk. <coughs> The trunk connects to the roots. It's all tree. But there's an acorn, which is part of the tree. If we were to take the acorn off, and someone said, where did you get that? We'd say, off of that oak tree. And the acorn drops into the ground, and it's nourished, and another oak tree comes up. And the question is, is the second oak tree different than the first? Or is it still part of the first tree? And then that tree drops an acorn. And there's another oak tree. And another oak tree. And another oak tree. Christ, according to A Course in Miracles and the Bible and a thousand other spiritual teachings, is simply one of the names for God's son, or God's expansion, or God's extension. His first extension. Since we understand things in time, then the story is told to us in, in the reference of time. So I don't know about these other appearances. But we do know this. In the sense that creation took time, and it didn't take time, but in the sense that it did, God's first son came to earth as Jesus. That's the story. It's interesting, you can find that story in almost every other religion. Even down to the virgin birth part of it. That means, and the Course indicates this, that Jesus was a man without an ego. And we are told by many people who have written on the subject that there are, in fact, a few on this earth without egos. I'm not one of them, incidentally. <laughs> now Jesus is said in the Bible, and Jesus says in A Course in Miracles, that there is nothing about him that we cannot attain, that, that his state is potential in us. We've, re we've read that already. He says in the Bible and in A Course in Miracles and in a thousand other places, we are all the children of God. Behold the oak trees that extend and extend and extend. All from the original oak tree itself. But it's clear that most of us recognize this only dimly. We don't think that we come from anything except another body and that we must bear considerable pain 
But this door, this opening into God, this relief unto happiness, is probably best understood in the Western world through the life of Jesus. And I think that's why we have A Course in Miracles. I think that's why it came when it did. The first copies got out in 1975, and then later ones came out in 1976 in a uh, fully published form. So let's talk about this example. Jesus, the door, the, uh, the way as we've been shown it. The simple way for us to let loose of our sorrow and to help our brothers and sisters. As I see it, and once again, this is not original with me, there are four aspects to Christ, the coming of Christ, and each of them we can learn from. The first one is the one we've already talked about. Christ is servant. Now as we look over this earth and we see the gurus and teachers and holy men of this world, now I'm not speaking of the genuine ones, but as we see the so-called spiritual teachers and holy men of this world, and they are only of this world occasionally, no one stays completely within this world without breaking out of it now and then. But if we just look at the way this world teaches that our holy men are, our rabbis and our priests and our ministers and those who come to us from India and those who come to us from Tibet and on and on. If we look at those people only in relationship to how they have yielded to this world, we see an example that is quite different than the one that Jesus set. Because we see in Jesus a man who was not a king in a worldly sense. We see a man who did not accumulate money or property, nor did he seek eminence, but he was a servant. He washed feet. What else did he do? He wept. Now this is a man that we have been told by many who are supposed to know, and by many scriptures, who had no ego, who came into this world as perfect as it is possible to come into this world. This man wept when other people were in pain. Do the holy men of this earth, and that includes us, when we fall within the confines of this earth, when we yield to the intoxicating view of this earth, when we yield to it and take it on and are dominated by our egos. Do the holy men of this earth weep when someone else is in pain? And what else did Jesus do? He bled. Now he obviously did not have to bleed. He obviously did not have to show the wounds. This man who could turn water into wine, we are told, could walk on water, did not have to weep and did not have to bleed. He chose to do that. Can we choose less than that? And what does it mean to bleed? 
And what do we do that makes us so bloodless? What is it that puts ice water in our veins? We do not let the people around us know of our mistakes and our sins and our troubles. We don't bleed. Our marriage is just fine. We tell only the stories that make our child look as if he's set apart from all other children. We don't bleed. Now this does not mean to become a martyr because Jesus certainly did not become a martyr. He wept and then he healed. He wept for the misery and then he healed the misery. He bled and he allowed his body to be ripped and pierced and he allowed thorns to be pressed into him and then he gently laid all that aside. He did not remain a martyr. His purpose was not to teach us martyrdom. His purpose was to let us know that we must love each other on the level that we are. We must take each other where we are. Another aspect of Jesus, of the Christ, of the coming of the Christ, and of the coming of the Christ into us, is that Christ was the Son of Man. What term or name do you suppose is used in the Bible more than all else for Jesus? Yes, of course, it's the Son of Man. It isn't the Son of God. He referred to himself as the Son of Man more than anything else. And what did he do? as the Son of Man. As the Son of Man, he prepared meals. He literally prepared meals and fed people. We will probably have the opportunity to do that very shortly in the Santa Fe. There are soup kitchens starting up now. All of this country we can do that. We can have a storefront where we take our excess clothes for people who need them, for people who are out of work. We don't have to say, uh, I would never be unemployed because I'm spiritually advanced enough that that would never happen to me. That's not the door. We haven't been told to enter the kingdom of heaven in that way. In fact, we have been told there is no way we can enter the kingdom of heaven if we go about it in that arrogant fashion. So he fed people. And he was much criticized for attending the parties of the beautiful people of his day. Possibly you remember that he was standing by the community well one day and a woman came up and started to draw water. He started talking to her and his disciples came up and said Lord do you realize you are talking to a pagan do you realize you're talking to a pagan meaning a Gentile of course in this country we've turned that the other way around <laughs> Gail and I have a mutual relative who uttered the famous statement one day I'd rather live next to a black couple than to a Jew. <laughs> You've turned that around, those little prejudices. This was the other way around. Do you realize you're talking to a non-Jew, Lord? Of course he knew that. 
It was a rhetorical question. Wouldn't he know that? Of course he knew that. He kept right on talking to her. Told her that he could give her water that would always satisfy her. And yet, a few years after that, there was all this commotion as to whether or not the teachings of Christ should be to be should be presented to Gentiles. Even the disciples themselves argued about this. Here he offered during his career on this and every other occasion that we know about his teaching, his help to anyone. And she said, uh, I'm not uh, I'm not drawing uh, this water uh, for my uh, husband. He said, I know that. He said, I know you're not married and you've had many, many lovers. And she said, oh, you must be the Messiah. <laughs> Interesting criterion, right? You see that I bleed. You must be the Messiah. Do we think we're the Messiah if we know that Someone sleeps around? No. We don't think that. We think we've got some leverage. <laughs> and we touched this juicy little piece of information about just who we saw over at the Lafarna bar enter our pocket for just the right moment to bring up. So he, he fed, even turned water into wine at one of these parties. He didn't just turn it into any old wine. The wine was so good that all the guests asked the host, uh, why did you save the best wine for last? Because the custom in those days was to start with the best wine. And then as everybody got a little drunk, then you'd bring out the cheap wine, you see. <laughs> So he, he prepared food, he broke the bread. Yes, he even uh, gave fish. He broke the, uh, the nutritional laws and the fasting laws of his time. Another aspect of the coming of the Christ that we can all learn from. The door, what the door is composed of. As Christ is king. Now most of the people in this room probably would be at least a little bit offended by that term, Christ the king. Sounds like something that uh, Jesus freaks would say. But please notice that at the beginning of A Course in Miracles, there's this statement. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. But no man cometh unto the Father but by me does not mean that I am in any way separate or different from you except in time. And time does not really exist. The statement is more meaningful in terms of a vertical rather than a horizontal axis. You stand below me, and I stand below God. In the process of rising up, I am higher, because without me, the distance between God and man would be too great for you to encompass. I bridge the distance as an elder brother to you, on the one hand, and as a son of God, on the other. And so this position of king or the position that you might have had in your own family in which you turn to an older sister or an older brother for advice, someone who'd been through it. In that sense, Jesus was king, lord of lords. And so what did he do? 
that aspect of him. He brought comfort, and he brought compassion, and he brought joy. He lifted out of sorrow. This is what he did as God's child. This is what the Spirit of God allowed him to do. But he began as a servant. And he went on as the Son of Man. And then he brought joy. And he said, I've come that you may have life, that you may have it more abundantly. And as I see it, that is the third hat that we wear. We bring comfort to each other. We bring peace to each other. Now let's go back and see what it is we can do. What can we practice to bring these things into our lives? What can we do, first of all, to practice the Christ, the coming of Christ as servant. I'd like to give you one experiment for you to try. There was a woman in our Thursday night group who said that she had been recently placed with another woman who everyone found extremely difficult. She was in a working situation with her. And she said she too was finding her very difficult. And one of uh, Santa Fe's famous five-minute blizzards hit. And she was going to her car and she found that her car was, was all covered with ice and snow and everything. And she looked and the car in front of her she recognized as this woman's car. And she had already spent considerable amount of time clearing the windshield and so forth. And a gentle voice within her, the voice of the servant within within her, said, please clean this woman's windshield. And she began doing that. And she said, the more she did it, the stronger and the happier she felt. The woman never knew who did that. She was even reluctant to mention it in our group, but did so, and I was glad that she had shared that. As servant, let me suggest that kind of thing. Do something for some other person without their knowing about it. Pick something that they will not find out about and do it for them. And do not ask yourself how long it will take. You will give yourself such a lovely gift that I cannot describe the joy you will feel. You will be sorely tempted to let someone know about it. Maybe your spouse or someone, a close friend. Don't do that. Just go ahead and give the gift completely freely. Now I'm going to ask you to close your eyes and imagine someone that you can do this for. Now this won't hurt. Just close your eyes. Think of some of your friends. Maybe think of someone that would be very unlikely that you'd want to do anything for. Or just think of someone you live with that you spend a lot of time with. Maybe one of your children. Now just imagine something that you could do for them. That would make them happy. And when you've thought of one, think of one or two more. Now remember, you don't have to do them. This is just a little exercise. Okay. Open your eyes. Now you can't say, I just couldn't think of anything. See, you've already thought of something. Okay, now what about 
the door, the coming of the Christ into our consciousness. What about that aspect? What can we do? So here is, here is Jesus as the Son of Man, the person who prepares food, who heals sickness, relieves misery, and bleeds. What can you do to be that kind of person in your life? What can you do to bring that kind of joy into your life? Well, the healing you already know about. And probably everybody in this room knows a lot about healing. And probably even more people know about preparing food. You probably do that a lot. Of course, you don't feel the joy of it if you complain while you're doing it. If you say, well, no one's going to appreciate this. And, and if you let everybody at the table know how long it took you to fix this particular dish. And all the grocery stores you had to go to to get a certain ingredient. Now that'll take away some of your joy if you do that. Because now you're asking for guilt. You're saying, would you please feel guilty? And if you say, uh, oh, I don't think this tastes very good, do you? I think, I think it's a little dry, don't you? Or, uh, excuse me while I go in the kitchen, I've got to get some salt. I don't think this has enough salt, do you? You'll take away a little of your joy because what you're asking your friends, your family, is would you please tell me how wonderful I am for cooking this meal? Would you please go on and on about it? You're fishing for a compliment. And what you will get is a hole in your soul. A temporary hole in your soul. That's what you'll pull up. Because whenever we try to manipulate other people or make them feel guilty or try to squeeze out of them a little gratitude or acknowledgement, then we lose love. So let's take the bleeding. Now, what you can do, what I can do, in order to bleed more is we can be completely transparent. Now, this is a very scary concept for people. I have to announce in our Thursday group pretty regularly that there is no vow of confidentiality in that group. That we believe that anything that we keep secret, we hold on to. That's just the particular place where we are. That's what we're practicing. Other groups practice other things, and they're perfectly fine. AA has a vow of confidentiality, and it's obviously an extremely good thing, because there are just many people who would not go into AA if there weren't such a vow. But for those people who realize that even that can be let go of, then they are ready for transparency. Now, I wouldn't try transparency for a whole day. Here's what I would do. Here's the, here's the experiment I would suggest to you. You're going to have lunch with somebody, or you're going to be with someone for just a few moments. What I would suggest that you do is decide beforehand that you're going to be completely transparent during this lunch. Completely open and honest. And to be honest means to be totally gentle. They're the same thing. Because honesty means that you are not picking and choosing between the contents within your heart. Whereas what we usually think of as honesty is selecting the negative and then giving this to other people. Honesty is the same thing as relaxing. It's the same thing as comfort. Honesty is simply the recognition that the truth is true and the truth is my friend. And I will not decide beforehand what the truth is. I will just let the truth be. So I'll be completely open and honest and transparent. I will allow myself to say what I say. And if you do this with the least bit of honesty, the first thing that you will feel is a great relief 
you may say something to yourself like, it's such a relief to hide nothing. Okay, I'm going to ask you to close your eyes again. Now, please imagine some sort of a thing that happens fairly often. Uh, lunch with some friend, maybe at work, you go out with a particular person. Maybe you sit down with someone in the evening. Maybe you ride uh, in a carpool. Just going to take someone with whom you feel safe. And just imagine yourself sitting there guarding nothing about your life. There is now nothing that you would not tell this holy sister, this holy brother who sits there with you about your marriage, about your children, about your past, about your paycheck, about your itch. And you've tried every court aid and gynecord and everything else and there's nothing that you won't tell. That you're this great person, but you've got this little gas problem. <laughs> now there's nothing. Not your open book, completely transparent. All the curtains are just thrown back. The shades have been raised. Now picture yourself in such a state of relaxation as that. Guarding nothing, defending nothing. See how impossible it would be for you to be in tension. If you were totally defenseless, you couldn't be tense. And why would you do that? Why would you bleed in this way rather than in the martyrdom way that the ego calls upon us to bleed, in which we try to make people feel guilty, in which we try to make people think that it is because of them that we have the headache or the cold or the tiredness, or the boredom. Not that bleeding, but the bleeding which we say, my brother, my sister, we walk together, we <coughs> hold each other's hands, we've got to climb over the same rocks and go around the same bends in the road. What good is it for you, for, for you to think that I'm further along than I am? How could that possibly help you, my sister, my brother, for you to think that? that I'm further along than I am. I will simply be confused because I will feel that you're not, but think that you are. And I won't understand why I haven't overcome those things. Because I think you have. And all the while you haven't. So just imagine yourself saying whatever you say. This isn't a process whereby we dig up every embarrassment and bring it up at lunch. <laughs> That's not the process. The process, we're just so totally relaxed and defenseless that we will just allow whatever comes out to come out. We're not going to say that the negative has to come out. We're just going to let what comes out comes out. That's all. Now, in your, your little imaginary scene, can't you see the closeness that this would immediately generate? This person would know you're not guarding yourself against them because that's what they think. Whenever we defend ourselves, the other person thinks, I can't be trusted. In some part of their heart, of their soul, they say, this person doesn't trust me because I sense that they're holding something back. They're moderating their words. They're coloring the story. You can open your eyes. So try that, please, just for a few minutes. And then when you see that uh, the world doesn't fall down on you and everything, in my books, it's an easy thing to do it in a book. At least it was for me because I just sort of did it in the book and then I sent it off and uh, I didn't know who was reading it and so forth and, and someone would call on the phone and say oh yeah I felt like kicking my dog too I, you know, I didn't know anyone else ever felt like kicking their dog or whatever else it is
But that's just a little area of sanity. I had to learn how to bring this into more and more things. Sometimes people don't want to hear all these other things, but if they come out, they come out, and you just trust it. We, how can we trust anything if we think we're having to defend ourselves and, and hold ourselves back? How can we possibly be kind if we think there's something to hide? Because now everyone is a danger to us. They may somehow get this piece of information out of us. So we look with suspicion upon everyone because above all, we must hide this secret. Let me suggest one other thing that you can do in connection with bleeding. And that is, any time that you run across a little thought that you think is embarrassing or that you think uh, you know better, I know better than to think that. Anything for which you feel guilt or fear or uh, a sense of irritation with yourself for thinking this particular thing, please immediately turn to God or whatever words you use for God, your deeper self, whatever it may be, please turn to God and tell him about it instantly. Now, if you'll indulge me one more time, I'm going to ask you to do that now for just a minute or so. Just search all in your heart for anything that you think is embarrassing or anything that you think indicates... Uh, that you repeat a particular error over and over. Something that you think is silly. Some thought that you think is silly. Just search yourself for embarrassments or guilts or fears about anything right now. Go ahead and find them. Once again, no one's overhearing what you're doing. And immediately turn to God and give this as a gift to God. Why a gift? Because God wants you to be happy. And when you give him this problem, the weight of that is no longer on your heart. And this makes God very, very happy. You can feel his laughter when you do this. You can feel him hug you because you have taken this weight off of you. Do you really think that your secret sin is more powerful than the love of God? Is there anything that the love of God cannot forgive about you? That's arrogance to think that you have done something or thought something or wished upon another something that could overcome the love of God who has said in every scripture, I love you without limit. Please come to me and I will forgive and wash away every embarrassment that you ever thought that you contained. Let's just take a second. All right, now the third thing. God is servant. God is the son of man. God is king. What can we do as, as God made manifest in these gentle people, these Jesuses and Buddhas, these Ramdases and Stephen Levines. What can we do? How can we assume that particular role? God made manifest as king. Some, may, some way may come to you. Let me suggest one 
right now. As king, and if we were king, we would bring hope. There's that wonderful story, maybe many of you have heard it, of a king who turned over his kingdom to a, to a man who had asked for it for a year and a day. And the man who took over the kingdom couldn't get anybody to do anything. He set taxes and no one would pay them. He made rules and no one would follow them and so forth. And the agreement was that at the end of the time, that if he still wanted to be king, the original king would let him be king forever. But he didn't want to be king because no one would pay any attention to him. And he said, what's the trick? Why are you... Why do you like being king? And why are you so successful? And the man simply said, I am only king until everyone else realizes that he is king. I'm a temporary king until they realize they are all kings also. And that, to me, is all that our sacred scriptures, our inspirational writings, are telling us. So kings give hope. Jesus let a whore wash his feet with oil and then take the oil off with her hair in front of everyone. He did this. A rabbi. He allowed that to happen. Can you imagine the hope that gave that woman at that time? For him to allow that to happen? Can you imagine how that lifted her sense of guilt when he allowed that to happen and everyone told him this was just an awful thing? Can you imagine the hope that it gave the woman that we spoke of who, who came to him at the, uh, at the community well for him to talk to her, a rabbi, and say, I will give you water and if you drink this, if you drink this water, you will, you will never thirst. And all the other things that we read about. The woman taken in adultery, who's about to be stoned. And scripture was quoted to him, that this was the procedure. And he stopped that. He went around giving hope. He went around giving comfort as king. That's the function of a king or of a president or of a senator, or of a representative, or of a head of a household, or of a parent who's king over his child. And his child has come back from school and has just told the story of what went on in the classroom. And we say, yes, but what did you do to deserve it? What did you do that caused all this commotion, you see? So we think our function is that my child feels guilty, so I will make my child feel even more guilty. That's, we think our function is to do that. Instead of to give comfort and to give rest and to give peace. So the very simple experiment that I'd like to suggest to you, and you'll be happy to know you don't have to close your eyes for this one, is <laughs> just to concentrate on one thing when you remember it. And that is to make people around you at ease just to make them comfortable you can do that you'll just hold that simple thought in your mind I want to make this individual that I'm with sigh I just want to put them at ease they won't even know you're doing that and you'll be king that's what king is And the last aspect, as I see it, and as is laid out in this section for today, not in these terms, is Christ as the Son of God. And how did Christ operate as the Son of God? He's already served and bled, and fed, and healed, 
and brought hope and brought comfort. And now what does he do as the Son of God, as the light of light, as the joy of joy? What does he do? And what are we asked to do if we wish to lay aside our chains? He brings celebration and happiness one step above just mere hope. That's what he does. And in every household, there is probably someone that's doing that perfectly. Almost every household. And that something that's doing it perfectly is a little kitty or a puppy or maybe an older dog if we haven't tried to teach it too much. Our child, these people, I'm, I'm calling them all people. I realize in uh, terms of Christianity, this is a little controversial to do that. But <laughs> we're just going to call them God's creatures. Notice that the puppy knows that everything on the face of this earth is there to make him happy. That's its function. Now, all these lessons that we've been reading, I know I don't understand anything I see, I don't understand anything I think, I don't know what anything means, all these early lessons. The puppy's already learned that because he doesn't, he doesn't think that a roll of toilet paper is for what we think it is. <laughs> he thinks it's to string out all over the living room because that's much more fun. And he doesn't think that old dirty socks are for washing. Yuck, we say, an old dirty sock. Puppies love old dirty socks. They'll go straight for the uh, laundry bin and get one out. Little kids don't think that food is for eating. Food's for all kinds of things. Food's for making little sculptures on your plate. Glasses are for pouring contents back and forth and adding wonderful things to them like ketchup and watching it go all through the water. Now you put it in the coke. Add a little pepper. That's what it's for. And we sit there so rigidly because we can only use the coke for one thing. And the fork can only be used for one thing. And we wonder whether or not we should put our napkin in our lap now or later. We look around to see what everyone's doing. Whereas the child has already discovered that you put the napkin over your head and you're a ghost. <laughs> That's Christ as the Son of God, the celebrator. I've I've come to bring you life and bring it to you more abundantly. Let me read you what this section says on that. The emptiness engendered by fear must be replaced by forgiveness. That is what the Bible means by there is no death. Did you know that statement is in the Bible three times? It may be in there more. I found it three times. The statement that there is no death. And I mentioned to you before that the statement, be not afraid, is in the New Testament just under 400 times. They're the same statements. There is no death. Be not afraid. Don't try to kill anyone's happiness. Don't try to kill your, your, your boy's, your little girl's confidence. Don't try to kill your friend's reputation for what she's done. Don't try to kill your, your own self-image. Don't do that. That is, why the, that is what the Bible means by there is no death. And why I could demonstrate that death does not exist. I came to fulfill the law by reinterpreting it. The law itself, if properly understood offers only protection. The law itself, if properly understood, offers only protection. The only laws there are, the laws of love, offer only protection. They don't spank our hands. 
God doesn't have something up his sleeve when he gives us this general instruction. We turn to God for advice, and we immediately think he's got something up his sleeve. You know, he doesn't really mean this. He's trying to hurt us or, or remonstrate. It is those who have not yet changed their minds who brought the hellfire concept into it, into the law. I assure you that I will witness for anyone who lets me, and to whatever extent he permits it. Your witnessing demonstrates your belief and thus strengthens it. Those who witness for me are expressing through their miracles that they have abandoned the belief in deprivation in favor of the abundance they have learned belongs to them. And in the same section, the escape from darkness, which is on page 8, are these two statements. Truth is always abundant. You were given everything when you were created, just as everyone was. That's the promise. That's the last function. That's our last function. To let people know that there's nothing for them to be afraid of. It's to become little puppies. And little kitty cats. And little children. That's what our function is. May I suggest an experiment to go along with that? Tape over your clocks. Now, you're not going to throw the clock away. You're just going to leave it there. But you're just going to put a little piece of tape over it. Or if it's one, you can turn around. You'll turn it around. But those that are in television sets and video recorders and so forth, you know, they sit there and they, they blink out their message. The first thing that you will find is that you will be amazed at how often you glance over at that clock or look at that watch. Now, you don't have to take your watch off. Turn it up, so, turn it so it faces down here. Unless that's the way you're used to looking at it. <laughs> then take it off, stick it in your pocket. Not going to throw it away. You're just going to do one little thing to let you know how often you turn to a watch or to a clock to time itself for advice as to how you are to live. Because that's what we are doing. We are consulting time instead of God. And we have a choice. Now, I'm not advocating that you be late for things. I'm not advocating that you... That you uh, make people who think that time is very, very important unhappy because the whole point of this experiment is to bring more love into your heart and more love into your life because that's what a little puppy and a little child already know. They know that nothing that they see means anything and all this other, and that everything therefore has only one purpose instead of all these multiple purposes. That's to make them happy. So they already know that their function is to love and be joyful. They already know that. We don't. We've taken on all these chains, all these confines, and time is unquestionably the greatest of those. Everything runs on time. We think God runs on time. We even think creation ran on time. Just see how often you, you look to a clock and to a watch, and then realize you've got a choice. You can turn to God instead. And after you throw off that confine, a little bit. Don't try to do this all at once. You're not going to try to operate entirely without time. You're just going to try to free yourself up a little bit. Then you can start looking at the needs of your body. How often does your day revolve around the needs of your body? Just see if you can let that go a little bit. Puppies do. Children do. Fall asleep right on the spot. Doo-doo anywhere. <laughs> matter. In this country, we used to have spittoons everywhere, you know. So you could spit just about anywhere. You can't do that now. And as you begin to notice these chains that confine you to this world and to the judgments that you have made and the judgments that I know I have made that have confined me limited my happiness and my freedom, make me think that I know what everything is for. 
then you'll begin to see what a garden God has turned this earth into because we don't see it that way now. You'll begin to notice that God put the people around you that have the greatest potential to make you happy and yet at the same time allow that happiness to be expanded. So if you will look around at your set of friends, you will notice that most of them have a personality that you can deal with just fine. You like their personality. And those are the partners who walk with you along this road. These are the people that God has set around you to help you. But notice also that there are one or two or three others who have these irritating characteristics. Irritating to you. Please notice that they're not irritating to everybody. Please notice that this one person that you find impossible, that there are some people who don't find that person impossible. That is your frontier. Notice how often you have been able to let a judgment go and bring another person into your joy. And notice how your joy expanded when you did that. Maybe you had a thing about smoking, that anyone who smoked was an evil son of a bitch, and you just weren't going to have anything to do with that person. And then you let go of that judgment, and now you can bring this person and this person, because they haven't let go of smoking yet. Or whatever else it may be. The words that they use are uh, whether or not they uh, use deodorant. I mean, gosh, on television, you'd think that the greatest affliction, if you came from another planet, you'd think the greatest affliction on this earth is, is mouth odor. But I mean, you really would. I mean, you just, you think this is the thing that's breaking up relationships and probably causing wars and everything else. So, so notice the things that irritate you about other people. These are your frontiers. Anything that you can let go of in that respect or begin practicing to let go of will allow you to bring a whole nother group of people into your love. That frontier has been placed there for you. That's why this person who's so impossible has come into your life because if you can just forgive them, you will now be able to bring 20 other people into your love just like that. So don't run away. Run toward them. Learn why it is that other people love this individual. Learn how other people can forgive this fault. And then everything will begin to turn into a garden. Do the same thing with food. If you can, gently, don't scare yourself. Gently question this insanity about food that we're getting now. We can't eat nightshade plants. I mean, good Lord. We're not supposed to eat uh, uh, sweet potatoes and uh, tomatoes and uh, eggplants because they're nightshade plants. Do you think, why do you think, do you think what do you think God did when he, whatever, whatever you want to call it, created them or recreated them, whichever way you want to put it? This is somehow supposed to hurt us? This lovely little tomato? And there's some guy going around now saying, you're not supposed to drink orange juice. Overloads the system. <laughs> and we've already got a very famous person who's eliminated nuts and avocados and vegetable oil. and uh, There's very little left now, I'm telling you. <laughs> There's no city in which you can drink the water. There's no city in which the air's any good. We've all read this. Look what we are doing to ourselves. You see, we're just putting more and more chains on ourselves. This is the Garden of Eden. Take no thought of your body, what you shall eat or what you shall put on. Dress to have joy. Eat to have joy. Have friends to have friends. Not to have soap operas. 